Hello, I'm Peter Robinson. On this special edition of Uncommon Knowledge, we mark the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which took place in the autumn of 1989, November 9th, 1989 to be exact. First, you'll see a video in which we asked a number of Hoover Institution scholars and Stanford historians several of the same questions, including, where were you when you heard that the wall had fallen, and why did it take us all by surprise? After that video, which we showed at a small dinner here at the Hoover Institution, you'll see me interview former Secretary of State George Shultz. It's a remarkable thing to interview a man just a couple of weeks short of his 99th birthday, whose recall of events 30 years ago, in which he himself played a central role, is total. After my interview with George Schultz, you'll see a few questions and answers from the audience at the Hoover Institution. You may recognize a couple of the people who asked questions, including the last questioner who, as you'll see, is hungry. And now, a celebration of the fall of the Berlin Wall. As the Soviets impose a communist regime on them, East Germans respond by fleeing to West Germany in the thousands. 1952, the East German regime seals the border between East Germany and West Germany, but not between East and West Berlin. Berlin, of course, lies deep inside East Germany itself, and about half of the city remains under the control of American, British, and French military forces. Now East Germans, who wanted to leave East Germany for the West, had only one place in which they could do so, the city of Berlin. And they began to do just that, simply taking the subway or underground from East Berlin to West Berlin, or simply walking through the checkpoints from East Berlin to West Berlin. Once in West Berlin, they could climb aboard a train, travel across East Germany to West Germany, and freedom. By 1960, the number of East Germans who have fled to West Germany reaches some three and a half million, or one-fifth of the entire population of East Germany. Working with the Soviets, on the night of August 12, 1961, a Saturday, the East German regime begins laying barbed wire around West Berlin. By the following morning, they have surrounded the city completely, sealing West Berlin off, a day that is still known in Germany as Stacheldrach Sonntag, Barbed Wire Sunday. Over the following days, they replace the barbed wire with cinder blocks, and in the following weeks and months, the cinder blocks with concrete slabs some 13 feet tall, in effect sentencing the people of East Germany to imprisonment. Those concrete slabs, the Berlin Wall, would remain standing for more than 28 years. The Berlin Wall was a symbol of the complete breakdown of the alliance between the Soviet Union and uh, the United States after World War II ended, and all hope then that perhaps Eastern Europe would be a place that people could be free, that they could travel to the West, uh, that they could see family, particularly if you were German. Uh, families got separated by this wall. And so it was, to me, the end of hope. The wall was about the fear that these systems had of their own people. They were afraid that their own people would run away. They were afraid that their own people would prefer the West. They would prefer that their own people weren't going to be duped by their own propaganda. It became a, a symbol 
right at the heart of Berlin of the failure uh, of the experiment in East Germany to create a viable state that would uh, enjoy the support of the people there. I, of course, live behind the Berlin Wall in East Germany and therefore got to know at first hand what it felt like for people to be imprisoned for nearly three decades. Many of these people were friends of mine, and I remember to this day, you know, the tears, the, the frustration, uh, and how difficult it was for them uh, to live behind that wall and quite simply not be free. I remember it, it hit me that time had stood still. This Germany looked essentially like the Germany of the late 1940s. Berlin became the epicenter of the East-West geopolitical tussle between communism and democracy and capitalism. Walls usually keep people out, and this was a unique wall that kept people in. And this came after World War II with the spread of communism in Southeast Asia and Africa and the Middle East, and everybody thought this was the dogma of the future, and suddenly they have to build a wall to keep people in. So it marked a turning point, I think, in the early 60s where people felt that the dynamism, and there was never a dynamism, but the professed dynamism of communism is, is a sham. Any, any system, any ideology that has to build a wall to keep people in is inherently bankrupt. So when the wall came down, it was absolutely breathtaking. It was just flabbergasted. The hopes they had of stopping the West Berliners destroying the wall were soon dashed. As dozens of young men pulled on a rope and chains, the chant went up, Mauer weg, done with the wall. The symbolism of seeing it crumbling, to me, was not just about Germany, uh, but it was about maybe this will, the entire Soviet uh, empire will collapse, and sure enough, two years later, it did. How on earth did it happen peacefully? The fact that it was peaceful, that was my main reaction of surprise. I suppose some people expected the wall to fall. And let's remember that Ronald Reagan made a speech imploring Gorbachev to tear down the wall. But for me, it was shocking the time it happened. And of course, we were surprised because we didn't understand that the communist elites would capitulate. By 1989, the Soviet Union had become a shell of itself. It was a country that really had no technological future. Its economy was in shambles. And that had brought to power a man, Mikhail Gorbachev, who understood that the Soviet Union was a shell of itself. It was in the context of the detente, which the second term of the Reagan administration uh, had introduced and seized the opportunity, including, of course, our Hoover distinguished fellow George Shultz, uh, that Gorbachev felt comfortable letting this happen. Reagan was extremely confrontational by comparison with his predecessor, Jimmy Carter. Uh, but when it came to the crunch, Reagan did detente too with Gorbachev and ultimately did more radical disarmament than had been done by any previous president. We're not through. 
Gorbachev played a, a very big part in changing Soviet policy and making it more possible for East Europeans to choose their own destiny. One of the reasons he did this was that he had an idea that communism could turn itself into something freer than it had ever been in history. So to that extent, he was misguided. Thank thankfully, he was um, doing what he did, but uh, he was misguided in thinking that communism could reform itself. By the way, if they had intervened, I'm not sure they could have preserved those regimes at that time. That the system didn't work. And once it, the people who perpetuate the system know that it doesn't work, it's going to be very hard to implement it abroad. It's sort of like an octopus. Before, they were cutting off the tentacles, but when you cut the head off, then it's not going to uh, be able to have any command or control over its periphery. There's a fashionable argument nowadays that, of course, the fall of the Soviet empire had nothing to do with what Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher did, or for that matter, Pope John Paul II, that these things were entirely endogenous consequences of bungled reform, the loss of legitimacy of the party, and so forth. This is a great error. The United States and its allies won the Cold War. The fulfillment of Kennan's vision was really a long project. It was a project of 45 years. Sometimes we get very impatient today and we say, oh, we've been doing that for 18 years or 20 years. For 45 years, they stuck with it. And then, of course, Reagan, who basically said, uh, this is a weak system, not a strong one. And uh, we can indeed, as Kennan would have put it, make it have to deal with its own internal contradictions. And that's why it fell. When Ronald Reagan came to office in the 1980s, this pressure on Moscow was increased. And this was one of the reasons why Gorbachev persuaded and was able to persuade the Soviet policy to change and was allowed by the Politburo to go ahead and seek an accommodation with the Reagan White House. Without this pressure, it's unlikely that this would ever have happened. It paid off in a way that makes us long for these days of cooperation, collaboration, diplomacy. We had the muscle, but we used diplomacy, and that's, I think, one of the greatest uh, message of that time. Standing up on behalf of freedom doesn't mean starting wars in places that are not necessarily strategic from an American point of view, but it does mean standing up to adversaries who are threats to freedom. We in the West as a whole, the United States, Britain, West Germany, all of us did, was to keep our own societies strong, prosperous, dynamic, open, and attractive. You know, the poster that the poll Solidarity used, it was entitled High Noon, 4th of June, 1989, and it was a picture of Gary Cooper in High Noon wearing the Solidarity badge. And that's an amazing tribute to the soft power of the United States. And the idea 
This would all have happened in 1989 to 91 if we'd done nothing. If Ronald Reagan had given a speech which said, Mr. Gorbachev, you can just leave the wall right there, it's fine with us, that's not plausible. The external pressure was crucial and it gave encouragement to those enduring persecution behind the Iron Curtain. The Cold War, you know, um, I think brought out in some ways the better angels, as I said, of the American people in, in you know, defending um, the right of people to choose their own governments. If we look at the values of the United States and of the West European democracies, proved to be much more attractive than the values and the practices of, of communist rule. We were preaching to the rest of the world, but we had something to show inside. We had the functioning institutions, democratic institutions, and we had something to be proud of. People revolted in the name of dignity and morality. They had enough. They were looking to the United States at the time, not necessarily to mimic it and copy its uh, system, but as a guide, as a power that stood by them. So let's remember, this was a multi-generational task. This was both sides of the political spectrum. There was a consensus in the United States that the Cold War was necessary. That consensus was correct. The Cold War was not a mistake. The Cold War was an achievement by the United States. It was a necessary challenge. That didn't mean we would rise to the occasion, but we did. I would say that the United States and its democratic allies passed the test that was put before them when the Soviet Union was astride half of Europe uh, to make sure that one day Europe would return to a Europe that was democratic and peaceful and prosperous. The challenges remain and they're different today, but we could learn a lot from those people uh, who created the circumstances that led to that extraordinary day when the Berlin Wall fell peacefully? Well, I think in the 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan showed all the qualities necessary for bringing about decommunization in uh, uh, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. He did this by showing firmness, he never gave up on his basic uh, objectives, but at the same time, he had the diplomatic skills and the self-confidence and the ability to impress upon Gorbachev that he could be trusted. If they could do a deal, he would stick to the deal. That enabled the world to come out of the Cold War without a hot war. Uh, and this was an, a stupendous achievement. And and it wasn't just Reagan, it was also George Shultz. It was a whole posse of American uh, politicians and diplomatists who were uh, supplying the uh, necessary support to Ronald Reagan, who had the necessary vision. And now, now the Soviets themselves may, in a limited way, be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. 
Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state, or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it? We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. When is this being shown, by the way? But let me just try one more time. Let me just try one more. Oh, there we are. There we are. No, that, that's it. So what I wanted to show you out of my hotel window is Unter den Linden looking from the east towards the Brandenburg Gate as we prepare for the great celebrations here in Berlin. And if you look in the distance there, you can see the Brandenburg Gate all lit up and they're preparing for the great party on Saturday evening. And I have to say, I find this very moving, having lived here 40 years ago and known what a grim and repressive, grim and repressive place it was. A member of the Princeton class of 42, George Schultz served in the, in the United States Marine Corps from 1942 to 1945. Semper Fi. He earned his doctorate in economics from MIT in 1949. In 1955, he joined the staff of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Eisenhower. Let me repeat that. 
George Shultz first served in the White House under President Eisenhower. Under President Nixon, he served as Secretary of Labor, Director of the Office of Management and the Budget, and as Secretary of the Treasury. Which brings me to the aspect of his career that we'll be discussing this evening. From 1982 until the end of the administration, Mr. Schultz served under President Reagan as Secretary of State. The Wall. August 1961, the Berlin Wall goes up. Do you recall how you yourself responded? Do you recall what it was like to hear that news? Well, I responded with a kind of horror. But nevertheless, it seemed to me, you know, this is what you expect these people to do. They have to keep people in. And I had an occasion when Helmut Schmidt, when I was Secretary of Treasury, Helmut was finance minister in Germany. And we became very good friends. And he later became chancellor in Germany. And he came and visited me here at my home on Stanford campus one summer. And I knew he loved Bach. So it was a Bach festival down in Carmel, and we went down. And in the intermission, being ahead of several, they set aside a room for him. And some of the musicians came. One of them was a, the violinist, who was a wonderful person in the thing. And this violinist was from East Germany. So he and Helmut talked a little, and Helmut came and said, you suppose we could invite him over to the house where we were staying after the concert? And I said, well, probably we could, but we'd have to invite a few other people so it'd get some cover. So we invited and they came. So I entertained the other people, and Helmut and the East German violinists sat by themselves, and I watched them, and pretty soon they were crying. The Chancellor of Germany crying. The Violinist was very talented. He was sent all over the world by the regime, but they never would let his family out because they were hostages. And they were talking about the artificiality of dividing the German people. And I watched that and I said, you know, something has got to happen. This is so artificial and wrong. But it made a big impact on me. George, soon after you become Secretary of State, there was a snowstorm in Washington and you received an invitation from Nancy Reagan. Tell us what followed. Well, I had been in China, and I, my plan was lucky to land at uh, Andrews Air Force Base. And then it snowed all day Friday. It snowed Friday night, so Saturday morning. Phone rings, it's Nancy. She says, how about you and your wife coming over and have supper with us at the White House? So we go over. I might say at this time, you remember, when, when we came into office, Jimmy Carter had shut down all contacts with the Soviet Union. They invaded Afghanistan, and with the concept of linkage, everything stopped. There were no contacts. The Cold War was as cold as it could get. <clears throat> anyway, we're invited over, and he starts asking me about the Chinese leaders. What are they like? They have a sense of humor. Can you find the bottom line? So on. Then he knew I'd dealt with the Soviets when I was Secretary of Treasury. So he started asking me, about what are they like, and so on. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, you know, this guy has never had a real conversation with a big-time communist leader, and he's dying to have one. So I said to him, I had arranged, with, it was really hard to do, but I had arranged to have weekly meetings with Ambassador de Bremen, and the idea was, and we stuck to it, that if we see a little weed, let's get it out before it grows. We don't need any more problems than we've already got. So I said, um, he's coming over Tuesday at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Why don't I bring him over here and you can talk to him? He said, that's a good idea. 
And he said, it will only take about 10 minutes. All I want to tell him is, if his new leader, Andropov, had just succeeded Brezhnev, if his new leader is ready for a constructive conversation, I'm ready. That was a bolt out of the blue. It was totally different from the whole psychology of the time. And so, um, Debrin comes over, I go over, would bring him over. We were there for at least an hour and a half. President Reagan talked a lot about Soviet Jewry. And it wasn't generalizations. He had incidents, people, things that happened, so it was very impressive. They talked about the Pentecostals who had rushed into our embassy during the Carter administration. They were still there. It was awkward because you couldn't expel them because they'd probably be killed and they weren't going anywhere. So he talked about that. He said, it's a big neon sign you've got in Moscow saying we don't treat people right. Don't let them worship the way they want. Don't let them emigrate. You got to do something about it. So on the way back, Debrin and I say, well, let's make, our special, let's make a special project out of that. So we worked on it, and finally I got a piece of paper I thought was pretty good. So I took it over to the president and I said, please don't call your lawyer until you can drive a truck through the holes in this memo. But I have to believe with all the background, if we get them out, they'll be allowed to emigrate and eventually go home and emigrate. So we rolled the dice, we got them out, they were allowed to go home. And then not only were they allowed to emigrate, all their families, about 50 or 60 people, it was a giant event. And Reagan had said all along with Debrin, I just want something to happen. I won't say a word, I just want it to happen. Well, Reagan never said a word. Press went crazy, how the hell did this happen? He never said a word. And I always thought there was a little bit of significance to that event because he saw you could make a deal with these people and they'd carry it out. And they saw the same thing. They saw, he said he wouldn't say anything, he didn't. So that built a little trust and was a start. Incident from Ronald Reagan's life. Discussion in 1977 he's having with Dick Allen. And he asks Dick, then one of his foreign policy advisors, if Dick would like to hear his view of the Cold War. And Dick Allen said, well, of course, governor, as he was then. And this is the quotation. Some people think I'm simplistic, Reagan said, but there's a difference between being simplistic and being simple. My theory of the Cold War is that we win and they lose. You served three presidents. What set Reagan apart? Well, he was, uh, he was, had great values and he had great strength of purpose. And Milton Friedman writes, and he said, I knew both Reagan and Nixon. Nixon was smarter, but he didn't have that core of values, whereas Reagan was smart enough to see what was going on, but the big thing was he had this sense of values. It was very deep, and he would mean what he said and said what he mean, so it was different with Reagan. Reagan was fun to serve with, he, and he had to, he'd bring acorns down from Camp David and feed them to the squirrels on the White House lawn. He had that kind of instinct. Turning point. In the 1970s and the early 1980s, the Soviets deployed some 600 intermediate-range nuclear missiles, or INFs, in Eastern Europe, missiles that were capable of striking targets all over Western Europe. And in 1983, your Secretary of State, the Reagan administration countered the Soviets by deploying Pershing missiles, again INFs, in Western Europe. And I've heard you say that that was a turning point. Explain that. 
Well, the Soviet deployment of the intermediate range missiles was a diplomatic ploy in a way. And they said, would we risk retaliation with their intercontinental ballistic missiles using ours to defend our allies? And so we developed a deal in NATO that we'd try to have a negotiation with the Soviets. And if we couldn't get anywhere, we'd deploy our own intermediate uh, nuclear missiles. So we got nowhere. And so we deployed cruise missiles in Britain with Margaret Thatcher's help. We deployed cruise missiles in Italy with Andreotti's help. And then in Germany, ballistic missiles, they were called Pershings. And it was hell, all hell, but Soviets withdrew from negotiation. They fanned war talk. They did everything they could to prevent that deployment. But we got it deployed. And after that, it was all downhill in the Cold War. That sort of show of strength, not a shot was fired, but it was an immense show of strength of the alliance that was impressive. Brezhnev dies in 85. You fly to the funeral and you meet for the first time a man called Mikhail Gorbachev. Your impressions of Gorbachev. Well, Gorbachev was the new leader of the Soviet Union. I had met with quite a number of the Soviet leaders and done business with them. When I was Secretary of Treasury, I was in charge of a relation, economic relations with the Soviet Union, so I knew them. And he came and we met. We were one of the last delegations he met with. Here he had managed this funeral met with all these people and he came to us, he was fresh as a daisy. And he had a few cards that he got from the Politburo, I suppose, and he shuffled them around, never even looked at them. But he was a conversation. He would listen to you and respond to you and expected you to respond to him. Always before you, you have a meeting with Brezhnev, you say something goes by his ear, he says it goes by your ear, that's another conversation. But you could have a conversation with Gorbachev, and I could see that he was very wide-ranging. So I said, I went back to the um, embassy and I told our delegation, this is a very different guy from any other Soviet leader we've dealt with before. He listens, he's smart, he's well-informed, he's gonna be a tough adversary, but, also, but you can, Talk to him. So I had that impression. I relayed that to President Reagan. Reykjavik. They meet first in Geneva. Then they meet in Reykjavik. Day one of a two-day summit. Gorbachev presents proposals for sweeping reductions in nuclear arms, including the elimination of Soviet and American nuclear stockpiles by 2000. Dramatic proposal. Day two after your team, the diplomats, stayed up all night ironing out details of an agreement. Day two, Gorbachev makes it all conditional on a ban of tests of the Strategic Defense Initiative. He, in effect, demands that Reagan surrender SDI. Reagan refused. The summit ended in what seemed like failure. As the meeting broke up, photographers captured Reagan and Gorbachev alike looking angry and disappointed. And one member of the American delegation insisted to the press quite soon after the summit that Reykjavik had not been a failure, but a breakthrough. And that member of the American delegation was George Shultz. What did you see that others did not? Well, I saw that in our overnight negotiations between the first and second day with leadership from Paul Nitze, we, had, we established the framework for the INF Treaty and the START Treaty. But then there was something else very significant that 
has been overlooked completely. I had an assistant secretary for um, European affairs that dealt with the Soviet Union named Razan Ridgeway. She was terrific. And she had a negotiation with her opposite number. And they agreed, and this was put into effect, that human rights would be a regular recognized item on our agenda. Always before that, the Soviets took the position that's none of your business what we do inside. But they agreed to do it, and I said, boy, that is a big marker. It shows that something is going on inside the Soviet Union with Gorbachev that's profound. Gorbachev, Gorbachev pursues Glasnost and Perestroika, and during the end, toward the end of the Reagan administration, when all kinds of events are taking place in Europe, Gorbachev begins asking you how capitalism works. Yeah, he did. And he knew that the Soviet economy wasn't going anywhere. He asked me to talk, talk to his minister of economy or whatever, I forget his name. Anyway, he said, you know, I sit here and I make a plan for every drugstore in the Soviet Union operates. He said, it's impossible. I said, of course it's impossible. The market can solve these problems for you. And we talked back and forth, but I could see he didn't get it. He and Gorbachev both thought the market is chaos. And you've got to manage everything. They never could get it through their heads how it worked. George, one last time, the wall. Just 10 months after you left office, November 9th, 1989, and the wall falls. Where were you? What did you think? What was your response? I was here. When I left office, I came here, and that's where I was. And when I saw that it had come down, I said to myself, well, it's about time. And um, it, it's a, it was a good thing. And, um, it, it, but I think in, when people look at the, the coming down of the wall, the significance of that is what came before it that caused it to happen. And right now, in my opinion anyway, we are in an even more tense situation with Russia than we were at the time of the Cold War. We both have nuclear weapons. The arms control things that we did are being cast aside. INF treaty gone. Probably the Open Skies Treaty is going. The START Treaty, is, New START Treaty is being threatened. It's a catastrophe. And there are all kinds of new weaponry and we have no talk going on between the Soviet Russia and the United States. It's very, very dangerous. And so I worry about it and I look back and say, what can we learn? Because back then we had nuclear weapons, we had total Cold War, and so it was tough, but, but, it, but it moved. I had an opposite number named Patolachov, he was a tough old guy. After one of our sessions, he suggested we go to Leningrad for the weekend, so we went. You know, I was surprised he took a ride on my plane. But anyway, he said, where do you want to go? I said, I'm going to go to the same place everybody else wants to go. I want to go to the Hermitage. I want to go to the Summer Palace. He said, no, first we go to the cemetery. So that's where we went. I don't know how many of you have been to the cemetery there. It's a big platform, and there's row after row after row of mass graves, big mass graves. So we walk down the center aisle. I'm supposed to lay a breath at the end. Funerian's music is playing. And he's telling me about the bottle of Leningrad. And he starts crying. 
And the woman who was our regular interpreter in these meetings dropped out until I looked around. She was totally collapsed. And everybody was in very weepy. And he said to me, there isn't a family in the Soviet Union that wasn't touched by the Battle of Leningrad. Anyway, we come back. And I said to him, I have a great respect for the people who are here because I also fought in World War II. I also had comrades shot down beside me. And furthermore, these are the people who stopped Hitler. And I walked up to the front of the platform. I got myself in the best Marine Corps straight back as I could, and I gave a long salute. And I came back and he said, thank you, George, that shows respect. And I was fascinated. When I came back years later as Secretary of State, I found that people knew about that incident. And it taught me something. If you show respect for something that deserves respect, when you criticize something else, it carries more weight for that reason. I thought, and President Reagan thought, we're here, they're there, but they're weak. And if we play our cards right and we have strength and we show an ability to deal with them, we can get somewhere. So I think that lesson is very applicable right now. We just have to have some way of talking with Putin. And I know it's hard. Jim Madison told me how difficult it is. But uh, it's gotta, we've got to figure out how to do it. So I hope that we can somehow figure out how to get Ronald Reagan back and uh, get us together. George, a last question, and then I think we'll have a moment or two for comments or questions from the audience. Here's the... I was struck during the film that Condi said, and Stephen Kotkin said, this was an intergenerational effort, the Cold War. George Kennan, once again in 1951, writes this, surely there was never a fairer test of national quality than this. The thoughtful observer will experience a certain gratitude to providence, which by providing the American people with this implacable challenge, has made their entire security as a nation dependent on their accepting the responsibilities of moral and political leadership that history plainly intended them to bear." Close quote. How well did we stand up? How well did the country do across those 45 years? Well, I think people stood up very well under those years. I went around the country quite a bit. I gave a talk here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. <clears throat> that was a tough talk and was well received. But I think people were also looking for somebody who would solve problems. And it was obvious to me in that dinner in the White House with President Nancy that I talked about earlier, that they had talked it over. And it was clear that Reagan didn't want to be a, a guy that promoted conflict. He wanted to be a guy that solved problems. So that's where he was coming from. Questions, comments? Mike McFall, yes, you, Mike. What did you think about the Secretary's comments about Russia today? Not to put you on the spot. To, if, if anybody doesn't know Mike, thanks, I can't Peter, for I can't putting believe, me on the spot. Yeah, I former that. ambassador to Russia. So he ought to, he, if I could put anybody on the spot, I figured Mike ought to be the man. So, George, you didn't mention that when you came to Moscow in 1985, you met Gorbachev, but you also met me. Uh, I was there as a student, and it was the thrill of a life. You were there with the vice president. You came to uh, at that compound. What was it called? It was the bar in the embassy. You came and talked to us. And I remember vividly, and I write about it in my new book, 
that you said there was something different about this guy, even in your first meeting. And I remember walking back to my dorm, well, walking back to my metro for my hour ride back to my dorm thinking, this is a big time. And that was just two days after Gorbachev had taken over. Um, I agree. I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think you can have disagreements about values, as you talk about in your book, uh, and still negotiate about things that really matter. And to me, if my, there was just one message I would like to give to the administration, there's some people here that know the administration a lot better than I do, if you want just one low-hanging fruit, there's one thing you can do between now and the next 12 months, and that's to, to extend the New START Treaty. There is just no strategic rationale for not extending that treaty that you talked about in your remarks. That is just a no-brainer. So I implore anybody that knows anybody in the Trump administration, extend the New START Treaty, and maybe that becomes a place and a basis of which we begin the rapport with Mr. Putin. Rose Goddard-Miller, who helped negotiate it, is coming here to FSI and Hoover together. Right. And she wrote a wonderful piece um, last week on this very subject, explaining how important it is to keep the New START Treaty alive. John Taylor, could you mind coming to the mic, John? All right. And, and, and I may before the, I may call on Jim Mattis. I, I'm told that he knows some people in Washington. We heard on the uh, films, Misha Gorbachev tear down this wall. And someone said, well, it wouldn't have been so great to say, hey, if you feel I could do it. So it was pretty demonstrative. And uh, I understand you had something to do with that, Peter. And maybe you were there listening at the time since you were secretary. Any thoughts about the significance? It, it seems quite significant to us as we look back in time, but a little thoughts on that very significant line, which we all remember. I, I, I can tell a little, little I'm happy to go on that one. Uh, and here's, a, I have wondered for 32 years since he delivered that speech, what effect it had. It's very hard to trace the actions that follow from words, if, inde if indeed any actions did. Um, this last week, when we were during the lead up to the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall, there were, I noticed in my Twitter feed, people were saying Reagan ended the Cold War with that speech. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You can't, and as a matter of fact, I asked Gorbachev about this at one point, and he listened to the interpreter say, Robinson's the one who drafted that speech, and Gorbachev laughed. And he said, ah, dramaturg, dramaturg. I was the playwright. But on Saturday evening, the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall itself, I found myself seated across from a man called Joachim Gauck. He went on to become president of a reunited Germany under Angela Merkel, but 30 years ago, he was a Lutheran pastor in Rostock. And those protests that spread across East Germany beginning in October and that led to the fall of the wall were organized originally around regular prayer meetings in Lutheran churches. And 30 years ago, Joachim Gauck was on the other side of the wall helping to organize the protests. And he had no idea that I had anything to do with Ronald Reagan. It was a dinner of 30 or so people. And Gauck said that that speech meant a great deal to the people on the other side of the wall. And he said, Ronald Reagan said the right thing at the right time in the right place. 
and I, I almost leapt across the table to kiss him because it relieved me of worries I've had for more than three decades. So I feel, as of Saturday night, the speech had some effect. You know the speechwriter who wrote those lines? He remembers them well. <laughs> but let me make a comment about Gorbachev, and I don't know how you interpret this with Putin, but Gorbachev was the first Soviet leader who lived in the Soviet Union. He grew up there, he saw the cruelty, he saw the terrible mistakes that were made. All of his predecessors lived in special dodges. Their wives stopped shopped in special stores. They didn't live in the country. They didn't really understand it. Gorbachev did and Shevardnadze did. Putin, he didn't grow up in the Soviet Union, in Russia either. He was out around as a spy and whatnot. So we, we need to have somebody experience the depravity of what Russia is really like. Russia is a basket case. Its economy is small and shrinking. They have historically produced uh, good um, researchers and so on. A lot of them are here in Silicon Valley. They're immigrating. The one thing they have is a powerful military. But other than that, they don't. So I, I, I think that in some point, there's going to be a need in Russia to stop putting all their funds in the military and do something for their people. It reminds me of a time when during the Cold War, we got Saudi Arabia to pump a lot of oil. So for a long period, the price of oil was very low. And so that, of course, hit the Soviet economy hard. And at one of our meetings, Ronald Reagan says to Gorbachev, why aren't you buying more wheat? And Gorbachev says, we don't have any money. Ladies and gentlemen, I, we're celebrating the fall of the wall, but what a magnificent life this man has led. Thank you, George. I, I, if, if there's time for one more, Jim, you get to say whatever you want to say as long as you say something. Mr. Secretary, let's see. <laughs> He's got to be careful because Charlotte has been made an honorary Marine and she wants to be the commandant. And he turned down an invitation from her. You know that's going to be bad news, Jim. <laughs> I'll be doing push-ups, I'm sure. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, George Schultz, join me in thanking him. Thank you. The fall of the Berlin Wall, and even three decades ago. One final thought. Throughout the Cold War, the 45-year conflict that ended, in effect, with the fall of the wall, one nation proved indispensable, the United States. This country had its allies, important allies, of course, but only one nation, ours, possessed the military might to offset the Soviet Union and the will to deploy it. For four and a half decades, under presidents of both parties, the Cold War was our conflict. The United States made its mistakes. Think of the Vietnam War. And yet, throughout those four and a half decades, it did its duty. The United States conducted itself with determination and foresight and selflessness. Whatever mistakes we may yet make, whatever ills may befall this country, for four and a half decades, this country stood for one cause, liberty. And we won. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation.